Good morning, church. Will you please join me in prayer as we come to God's word? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with a recognition that we so desperately need to hear your voice. Uh, We need to hear your voice for strength as we seek to trust you and follow you in um, the challenges and trials that come each day. We need your voice as we seek to be wise in our decision-making, as we seek to make much of you. We need your voice as we seek to continue to uh, kill sin in our life and grow in sanctification and glorify you in all the big and the small things that we do. So help us today. Give us a, a hunger and a thirst uh, rather than reading these words and thinking, okay, can we just get to the point? Give us a, a readiness to receive. Guide us by your word and spirit this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, as Tom mentioned, we are beginning our new series on the book of Philippians, and we're going to study this book in quite a bit of detail across our three campuses, both on Sundays, but also in our CG Bible studies that your leaders will tell you more about that soon. And so as a heads up, I'd love to encourage you to read ahead uh, in the coming weeks. It's not that long of a book, uh, but read ahead, you know, circle words, concepts or themes that stood out to you, you know, engage with the text. Uh, you might even want to underline words, concepts and themes you have questions about. So that when you come on Sundays or when you go to CGs, you're, you're prepared. You've read this before. You're ready to mine the riches of Scripture, right? You know, engaging the Bible in this way will enable you to come with a posture of preparedness and expectancy. Um, and God works through these attitudes and He speaks loudly as His Word is opened in this way. Now, as we begin our series, I want to introduce you to the Church of Philippi, the group of Christians that this book was initially addressed to. And I will expand more on this in the weeks to come. But, you know, the, the church of Philippi was actually a difficult and challenging church. A difficult and challenging church. As we read Philippians, we'll know that this church faced largely three challenges. Firstly, they were experiencing persecution from outside of the church. Persecution from outside the church. People wanted to silence their faith. And so, for example, in Philippians 1 verse 28, Paul tells them to not be afraid of those who oppose them. External persecution. Secondly, they were threatened internally by false teaching. People were saying that you need Jesus plus all these other things. Philippians chapter 3 alludes to some of these false teachings Thirdly, the church was struggling with conflicts and disunity within the church. They just weren't getting along. And so there are repeated calls from passages like Philippians 1 verse 27. Paul says, stand firm, have one spirit, be united under Christ. Three challenges, external persecution, false teaching, internal conflict. Things weren't going very well for them. And I don't know about you, But this is not the sort of church I would naturally think about joining or settling in. Like if I moved to a new area and was looking for a new church, new service to be part of, to grow in my faith, to serve, the church of Philippi probably wouldn't make it to the top three of my list. I wouldn't even go to the membership essentials class, right? Sign up for it if you haven't had to, right? You see, and yet Paul... God's messenger to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as you read Philippians, we see that he actually has a very soft spot for them. 
Paul loves this church. And on behalf of God, Paul expresses sincere concern for them. And he's writing this letter to strengthen them because obviously God has not given up on them just yet. And this is critical for us, right? Because Grace Point, we we live in Sydney with a lot of excellent churches. And I think it's become increasingly easy for us to give up on imperfect churches in pursuit of the perfect one. Now, of course, there are sometimes good reasons to go to a new church, right? Nothing wrong with wanting to go somewhere closer to home so you can bring your neighbors to church. Nothing wrong with wanting to go and serve in a less resourced church. Nothing even wrong wanting to go somewhere where your kids can have a better community to be raised in the faith. Nothing sinful, nothing wrong about those reasons. But the idea of leaving your church because it's imperfect, because the music's not great, because the preaching doesn't keep you on the edge of your seat, because the facilities aren't amazing, or because it's frustrating, you know, leaving for these reasons is actually quite foreign to the Bible. You see, if you pay close attention to verse 1, then you'll notice that this letter here is sent to all of God's people at Philippi. This means that there was probably only one recognizable church in the whole city of Philippi. And this one church was the difficult, imperfect church. Yet far from telling Christians to give up and considering separating from each other, Paul urges the Christians there to double down on the gospel, to double down on grace, to double down on faithfulness to Jesus, and to allow these precious truths to penetrate their hearts and overflow from their lives. This difficult and imperfect church was their only church, and this imperfect church was still a church that God delights in. So as we examine the book of Philippians and as we assess our own hearts, we may discover that there are more reasons to delight in our imperfect church. More reasons to delight, more reasons to give thanks than we realize. We may discover that an imperfect church actually perfectly mirrors the gospel, which says that God redeems imperfect people. Philippians will begin to uncover maybe some of our discontentment and dishonesty and maybe shatter any sort of disillusionment that another church or another community will fulfill our heart's desires. And it reorientates us to Jesus, the one who can fulfill the longing of our hearts. That's exactly how the book of Philippians starts. And it begins with Paul's greeting. And here it contains a sort of commendation an encouragement to a difficult church that ought to reframe our understanding, right? These six verses shows us, church, that a faithful church is a healthy church. A faithful church is a healthy church. There are a lot of things that a healthy church can do. And as a church, Grace Point, right, our desire, I can tell you as your pastor, is to shepherd and to serve you in your faith in every stage of life. There's a lot of things we can do. But Philippians shows us what a healthy church must do. And it's surprisingly simple. It's a call to faithfulness. A faithful church is a healthy church. As you come to point one with me, we see that one of the features of a healthy church 
is that it is faithful to the Bible's instruction to have recognizable leaders. Uh, read verses 1 to 2 with me. It says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. If you have your own Bibles, you can underline those two words, overseers and deacons. Now remember, Paul knew that he was writing to a imperfect and difficult church, but he continues to call them God's holy people. Now, if you read the rest of Philippians, you'd be like, I don't see much holy about them, right? But you see, Paul calls them holy, not on account of how amazing they are, but on account that they have been saved and are being sanctified by Christ Jesus. And then you see within this body of holy people are two recognizable groups of people, overseers and deacons. Now, the word overseer here means guardian. So think guardians of the galaxy, right? Guardian. Someone who has the responsibility of safeguarding the well-being of a group. Um, In the Bible, the word overseer is frequently used interchangeably with other words like elder, pastor, shepherd. Uh, Some Christian traditions and denominations use the word bishop, which is also an acceptable term. And their main task as leaders are to safeguard the church and God's sheep by pastoring and caring for them. To safeguard the doctrine of the church through sound and biblical teaching. To safeguard the mission of the church by prayerfully leading the church. Every faithful church must have overseers, elders, pastors, bishops who are duly qualified and duly appointed. Here at Grace Point, we have pastors who are given a stipend or who are paid so that they can fully give their time and energy to doing exactly this. But we also have a growing team of elders, um, people, men who have Monday to Friday jobs, but use their extra time to do this as well, just to a lesser degree. They shepherd, lead, safeguard our church here at Grace Point. Uh, The word deacon here literally means servant. Someone who has a responsibility of attending to the needs of a group, And in the Bible, the word is applied to a group of people who are uniquely tasked with servant leadership. That is, they are to be exemplary people who serve, but also take leadership in serving. Their main task is to look after the needs of the church. And, you know, in the early church period, um, deacons, they were in charge of feeding the poor, caring for the sick and widows, tending to the administrative work of the church so that in the early church, the apostles and the elders can focus on safeguarding the church. Deacons looked after physical, relational, and administrative needs of the church. Uh, Here at Grace Point, the work of deacons is actually dispersed. It's not concentrated within one body. It's dispersed across, for example, a group of leaders called the Committee of Management. Sounds so corporate, right? But the Committee of Management, that's the a term we inherit from denomination, we can't change it, right? But they do a number of things, right? So important. You don't see it. But without them, we wouldn't have what we have here. Uh, For example, they manage our church's finances so that our church continues to function. They organize our money so that missionaries we support receive their funding on the field. Uh, They work and they manage things so that different organizations we partner with that care for the poor and needy receive your generous support as you give to the church, 
they redirect those to organizations we love and trust. They manage our property and assets so that ministries can continue to thrive. You know, our building would have a lot more leaks without our committee of management. Now, to be sure, the committee of management does not do all that deacons are called to do. And so the work of deacons is also dispersed across different ministry team leaders and CG leaders who foster an environment of friendship and care. Remember, physical, relational, administrative needs. Now, there is certainly room for more clarity and improvement on this, at least here at Grace Point. You're probably not too familiar with the term deacon, though we have those functions. We don't really use that term, and I think there's good reason. Like, I'm rebuked from this passage to bring more clarity on this, right? But we believe that this is a crucial and critical role within the life of any church. And so as Grace Point, we continue to identify, train, and select qualified overseers and deacons for the church. Now, if you are familiar with the New Testament, then you will know that there is no accident, no coincidence that there are overseers and deacons in the church in Philippi. Because Paul in 1 Timothy 3 instructs that churches ought to have elders and overseers. But what's more, he further instructs on the character and competency of these leaders. So, for example, if you turn to 1 Timothy 3 with me, uh, it speaks of elders and overseers who have particular character responsibilities and competency responsibilities. I'll read that in just a moment. But I hope the point is clear. A faithful, healthy church is one that is imperfect. It may even be filled with difficult problems. Yet it is faithful to the scriptures teaching that a church ought to have recognizable leaders. Now, here's the thing, though. Why is having recognizable leaders so important? Firstly, I think it is a sign of faithfulness to Scripture. A church that has recognizable leaders like elders and deacons believe that instructions from passages like 1 Timothy 3 is not just a soft recommendation, take it or leave it kind of thing, but a firm teaching from God. And so we ought to obey God's word. I think that's one of the reasons why it's important to have recognizable leaders. Second of all, it puts us on a path of flourishing. It puts us on a path of flourishing. You see, God's word to us, to you, as you read his word, is never accidental, is never haphazard. God never puts us on a path of destruction. And so with these truths in our minds, we recognize that when the Bible says, appoint elders and deacons, we believe that this will ultimately produce the health and the growth that we think is right. So even though it could seem counterintuitive, even though sometimes things happen a little bit slower, we affirm God's word that it produces life and we pursue it. But thirdly, it's important because it recognizes the reality of human behavior. Here's what's interesting. When you have a group of people gathered together, one of the inevitable realities is that leaders emerge. Even if you don't appoint them, leaders begin to emerge. Leaders provide direction, guidance, vision, motivation. It is nearly impossible to have a completely flat or egalitarian power structure. Even in your friendship groups, right? So think of your friends that you have. In a friendship group where there is no assigned authority, 
But everyone knows who to turn to when we need to make a final decision on where to eat after church or where to meet uh, for CG gatherings, right? No one's been assigned, but at the end of the day, everyone goes, all right, Josh Chung, where are we going, right? You see, the reality with churches is not whether or not there are leaders. It's a question of who is qualified to be a leader. It's a question of whether or not we have good and godly leaders or whether we have bad leaders. If God's word was silent on the matter, then you might have really charismatic leaders but have no character. You may have really persuasive leaders but no prayer life. You may have really talented leaders but cannot teach the word. But it's almost as if God's word recognizes this inevitability. And so God speaks truth that leads to life. Your pastors, elders, and deacons, in the words of 1 Timothy 3, ought to be people of godliness, humility, character, servant-heartedness, hospitality, self-control, generosity. You see, these things are all soft skills that overflow from godliness. You know, this guards the church, doesn't it? By weeding out toxic leaders but also by appointing good and godly ones for the good of the church. But you know why it's really important that scriptures have standards? It also keeps our leaders accountable. We know who to bring in, but we also know who to say, I think it's time for you to step down. A healthy church is a church that is faithful to the call of scripture to appoint godly and recognizable leaders. You know, if it is true that an imperfect but faithful church ought to have recognizable leaders. And I think an application for us as Grace Point is to embrace this as God's good design and to partner with our leaders rather than oppose or resist them. Now, by partner, I mean coming alongside your leaders, right? We can apply this very specifically to elders and deacons, but you know, I think that we can actually apply this more generally to leaders appointed within our church. Uh, So not just your elders and pastors and deacons, but to anyone who has assigned a sort of leadership role. They might be imperfect, and they probably are. They might still be learning what it means to lead, and they won't get everything right, especially your pastor. But if they are duly identified and affirmed according to the standards of Scripture, then we recognize that God has appointed them for this role. And that means very practically we engage with them while they teach us the Bible. Uh, Rather than sit back and allowing fatigue to take over, we we sit up with our minds switched on, hearts engaged, hands prepared to respond. We respond with joy when our our CG leaders lead our groups, right? Uh, Rather than dragging our feet to gatherings, uh, rather than dragging our feet to music practice, to team meetings, we, we, we become more proactive. We ask how we can help when we're setting up a room. We offer to serve when there are new initiatives. We we respond with enthusiasm to WhatsApp messengers. I know that that's very difficult for some of us, right? But but we we partner, we we get involved. We speak when they ask for feedback and input. We ask how we can pray for them and support them. We express love and gratitude to them. Here's the thing, right? The majority of our leaders here at Grace Point are sacrificing their time and their energies to serve our church and to serve you. 
They're doing this because they love Jesus and because they love you. Now, now, none of them are doing it for the applause. None of them are doing it for the gratitude. But gee, wouldn't it be great if we were a grateful church? We said to our leaders, hey, thank you so much for spending the year praying for me. Thank you for spending the year teaching us the Bible in our small groups. I know we have such a big group, and it's so difficult to manage a group this size. Sometimes it's like herding cats, right? Thank you, CG leader, for managing all this. You know, you know, sometimes our leaders, like, they walk with us and pray for us in, in seasons of difficulty and trial. And when those seasons are over, we kind of forget what they've done. It's kind of tragic, isn't it? That we text them and we call them when we're at our lows. And when it's over, we forget they ever existed. Hey, can we be a church where we are so grateful for the leaders who pour out their lives for us? But I think another way that we can partner with our leaders is actually to be patient with them. Again, as I mentioned, leaders are imperfect. They will say the wrong things. They will make mistakes. They are prone to error. They're human, right? You know, sometimes this this expectation that they can be perfect can be so crushing for your leaders. Like, you know, they can't play any wrong note. They can't accidentally teach the wrong thing or they can't uh, be five minutes late to a meeting. Oh, no, 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 no. We, We need to be patient with them. Especially when it comes to the life of our broader church, right? As you think about how our church is going to keep growing to be missional and engaging with our community, all these things take time. I'm super grateful, especially for people who've been at Grace Point for a very, very long time. They understand this. They understand that growth takes time. And I want to encourage you to continue to be patient with your leaders as they seek to love and serve you. Now, it's very important that we recognize this doesn't mean that we put our leaders on a pedestal. It doesn't mean they become untouchable or they have a leader status. Oh man, like they they can never do anything wrong. We excuse all the errors. No, 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 no. No, we challenge them where they make a mistake. We correct them when they've made an error. The Bible holds them in strict regard. We call them to repentance when they sin. And you know what? The Bible has such high standards for leaders that when they do sin... Their repentance is more public than the average member. Like, like when you struggle with sin and you, you confess, you know, that's you, before God, you are forgiven. But when, you have to know in the life of our church, when, when leaders sin, they need to have a public confession to those that they're accountable for. That's Scripture's standards. They're not untouchable. But when we see them being faithful to Scripture when we see them being humble in service, when they see them being heartfelt in ministry, we partner with them. We make their leadership and ministry a joy. We embrace godly leaders as God's gift to us. We want our leaders to be healthy, strong, and vibrant so that they can lead us well. Church, is that something we can look to this year? Second of all, a healthy church, if you look at point two, is a church that faithfully partners in the gospel. Read verses three to five with me. It says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, as I mentioned, Paul is speaking to a difficult and imperfect church. Yet notice that Paul oozes, overflows with thanksgiving and joy. He's able to do this because of their, read your text with me, their partnership in the gospel. Now, partnership in the gospel simply means working together 
to advance the good news of Jesus. Working together to advance the good news of Jesus. So that the whole earth will know that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Now for the Church of Philippi, one of the major ways that they partner with Paul in the gospel is through their financial generosity as they gave money for his missional work. That's why Philippians 4 verse 15, Paul there thanks and commends them for giving to his ministry, right? But as we read the whole of Philippians, we must not think that giving money is the only way to partner in the gospel, the church in Philippi also used their lips and what they spoke, and they used their lives in how they serve. This is actually a really good summary of our catechism, right? Now, if you look at your sermon outlines with me, I have there a very simple table that I realize that it's printed in smaller fonts. You're going to have to squint or pull your magnifying glasses out. Um, and it shows some examples from the two categories of lips and lives. Um, look at that with me as I, as, I, as I speak. You know, we can partner in the gospel through grace-centered content of our speech by actively teaching about the gospel and the Bible. Paul does this, Philippians 1, 12 to 18, where he's evangelizing, he's preaching, even while he's in prison. Uh, so for us, partnership could look like sharing the gospel with people around you. As you teach the Bible to one another in small groups, as you pray for one another, as you speak hope to one another, as you share your testimony about the difference that Jesus has made in your life, as you cultivate what I call here gospel fluency. And by that, I mean growing and becoming more natural in how you speak about how God is at work in your life. It's also as you grow in maturity and responsibility, it includes as you train people to do these things. You know, it's so beautiful when we see a church gathered together and partnering in the gospel together through their lips. I, I, I love it, right? Um, one of the things I love seeing as a pastor is, is uh, sometimes on church after Sundays, I'm walking around right, like a headless chook trying to, trying to fix things up and open doors and, and, and speak to people and pray with people. But then sometimes I, I, I walk past you know, that corridor in front of the toilets and I see people praying for each other. Just there. Not my initiative, not, not anything formal. Just people praying for one another. I was at a wedding reception yesterday, um, and as I was walking on my way out, I was walking towards the lifts, and I looked over to the left, and I saw two sisters there on the couch just talking and sharing with tears running down their face. They're just like loving each other and speaking hope to one another. Here's the thing, right? You, where you're seated right now, you will have conversations with people in this church that I will never be able to have. Sometimes we think, oh, we need to like escalate this to a CG leader or the pastor. And, and sometimes it is right and appropriate to do that. Let me encourage you, right? Do that. But at the same time, I want you to see that you actually have profound access by God's word and spirit to speak grace-centered content into somebody else's life and to change them and transform them into Christ-likeness. That's powerful, isn't it? This is what Paul is speaking of when it comes to partnership in the gospel. The purpose of this is to show Christ to be our greatest treasure and inviting people to trust in him for forgiveness, hope, and eternal life. Uh, but then you see, often we think that partnership in the gospel is limited to this 
only when we speak gospel content. But there's more, you know. We partner the gospel throughout the grace-saturated quality of our lives. The word saturated is, is, is powerful and very intentional, right? I want you right now to imagine a piece of wet cloth with me. Wet cloth. It's a cloth or a towel saturated in water. Now, what happens when you leave a wet cloth on a table? The table becomes wet. What happens when you wipe a surface with the wet cloth? The surface becomes wet. What happens when you do nothing and you just hold the cloth on your hand? Your hand becomes wet. That's what happens when that cloth is saturated in water. Likewise, our lives are to be so saturated in grace that we leave a mark of grace in the lives of those we come in contact with. Everywhere we go, every person we speak with, every point of contact we have, we leave a mark of grace in their lives. Philippians 2 gives us an example, right? Uh, Paul speaks about how the humility of Jesus ought to radically transform us, how the forgiveness of Jesus changes our posture. And then after highlighting this amazing and profound theological reality, Paul says, therefore, live humbly and with integrity so that all may know the humble Christ you worship. Grace point, we do the same as we love one another. John 13 verse 35 says this, By this people will know you are my disciples, Jesus says, as you love one another. It's the same when we learn to forgive, even when it's difficult. When we seek reconciliation when it hurts. When we are patient even when it costs us. When speaking words of correction and truth are needed. It is as we serve in formal and informal ways here in church, but also outside of the church. It's as we offer hospitality. Can I just say that again? Hospitality is, you know, in, in the scriptures, I think it, it's very powerful because they had such a culture of hospitality in the period of the early church, right? But I think this is needed even more today, hospitality. In an age where we are more connected to one another in terms of options but less connected to one another in terms of relationship and depth, right? You can live in the same apartment block and never know your neighbor. Like you curse them, right? Because your walls are so thin and you hear them watch TV, but you don't know who you're cursing. You don't know their name, right? Isn't that so? That we are so connected to each other, yet more disconnected than ever. Hospitality is such a powerful expression of the gospel where we open our arms wide and say, welcome. Isn't that what Christ has done for us? Welcomes us into his family, as Tom said, welcomes us to worship. What a beautiful expression of grace and generosity and kindness. But also, as you look at your tables, uh, this life that is marked by the gospel is also as we give generously to the work of the gospel. As we use our work, as we use our creativity to stir people's interests in God and eternity. It's as we foster a culture of goodness and healing here at Grace Point so that the hurting and the hopeless can find their home. As we invite people to church and actively help them to be settled, as we introduce our friends to our friends, as we help them to settle and know more about the gospel, 
as we pursue cross-centered sacrificial lives to make much of Jesus in all that we do. You know, the aim is also very simple. Look at your tables. Showing Christ to be our greatest treasure and inviting people to trust in Him for forgiveness, hope, and eternal life. Here's the exciting thing, church. The book of Philippians was addressed to all of the Christians in Philippi. That means that every Christian there was somehow involved in partnering with the gospel. That means that you and I here at Grace Point can also be likewise involved in partnering with the gospel. Young or old, everyone can get involved. I think that's the beauty of it all, isn't it? I don't know about you, right? But one of the ways that I'm encouraged in my Christian growth is when I hear us sing as a church. Singing can be such a reflection of spiritual vibrancy, right? But, but can I be really honest with you? I, I, I don't really care like, how you guys sing because what I'm really excited about is hearing the kids back there sing. When they just like yell, especially Elijah, right? Just like yelling, right? He's got no idea what he's singing, but he's singing, right? I just love that. Like this little kid, right? Is spiritually feeding our souls and causing us to enjoy God and worship God together. Isn't that beautiful? I, I love it. Okay, I, I want to say I love this, but I want to say be careful, right? Okay, I love it when I see some of the older folks in our church do set up and pack up. Okay, like sometimes I see them, like, oh, that doesn't look very safe, right? You know, so young people, if you see that, go get involved, right? But I love it because for them, they're just like, I, I don't know how I can serve, but I'm just going to do whatever I can. Oh, can you believe that? That they just want to get involved and then you see, that's a need, I'm just going to get involved. Our church, that we would have that posture and that heart, young or old, we're getting involved and partnering the gospel to show Christ to be our greatest treasure. You know, a healthy church is one that is faithful to the call to partner in the gospel. Now, here's the thing, church. Notice Paul's expression of deep thanks and gratitude. I mean, read his words. Try to get into the the mood of what he's trying to say. Here, imperfect, challenging, difficult church. It is thankful. So much joy, so much gratitude. I wonder if we feel the same about our imperfect church here at Grace Point. Do, do Do we feel that same depth of gratitude? I know. Uh, That many of us in this room may have minor or major dissatisfactions with our church. I I know it. Everything from our air conditioning temperature to our wider ministry strategy. These things are far from perfect, right? And by the way, like I'm as frustrated about the aircon as you are, okay? So so believe me. Because you think you're cold, but up here I have no vents. I am sweating, right? So I am as dissatisfied as you are. Here's the question. What do we do about it, though? How do we deal with dissatisfaction in an imperfect church? Well, firstly, as you come to point 2C uh, with me, or 2B, it's not wrong to identify ways in which we are not perfect. We, we, we can speak about it, yeah? Philippians 3, Paul doesn't hold back in calling out the dangers within the church. The false teachers who are spreading this unity and division, he calls it out. We do not have to be silent about imperfection. The grace of God actually gives us enough confidence and security to speak of our church's flaws with truth and love. It's okay to speak of your dissatisfactions, though what's very important 
is that we choose the right contexts, the right environments. You know, airing your dirty laundry everywhere could just stink up a place unnecessarily. But airing your dirty laundry in the wrong place could also mean that that dirty laundry never gets cleaned. So air your concerns, but find people you trust. Find people who are in a position to maybe do something about it. You know, Grace Point, my hope and prayer is that I am someone you feel comfortable expressing your concerns and dissatisfactions. I pray that you know I have a listening ear, that when you speak, you will be heard. And then when things are heard, God willing, some actions will be taken. I hope I'm someone you trust. I hope that I have a bit of track record of that. But if you don't feel like you can speak with me, then at least speak to another leader you trust. It could be your CG leader, your ministry team leader, an elder, a minister in training. Speak freely, but be wise in the context that you choose. There is no need to hide. But then second of all, Philippians 1 actually reminds us that more often than not, there are more things to celebrate and give thanks for. More than we realize even in a faithful and imperfect church. Again, Paul is incredibly sober about the state of the church in Philippi. He knows that they're messed up. They don't have it put together. But here he does not hesitate to say to them, guys, hey, you're doing a really good job. Keep it up. I am so grateful and overjoyed. He is not speaking to a church that's got it all figured out. Imperfect, flawed. But it says, guys, keep it up. Hey, do, do we think that of Grace Point? Or are our eyes skewed towards everything that's wrong and we miss all the macro and micro ways that God is working good within our community? I wonder if our critique of our churches sometimes says more about the state of our own hearts than the state of our church. And so thirdly, Philippians 1 verses 3 to 5 also shows us then that our critique of imperfection needs to be matched by our commitment to partner together in the gospel. Our critique of imperfection needs to be matched by our commitment to partner together in the gospel. And it's so easy, isn't it, right, to talk about everything that is wrong about church. You know who is really good at that? Your pastor, man, they are like professional critiquers, right? They can see everything that's wrong with the church, right? Here are 10 ways that it's not good enough, right? My brothers and sisters, this imperfect church in Philippi was evidently good enough for God. And so we see the Christians in Philippi heeding the words of Paul continuing to labor together to make Jesus known, to speak truthfully about imperfection, to celebrate the good work that they see around them, whether big or small, church. Could that be us? Partner together in the gospel. So can I give us a point to ponder, uh, point to see here, right? Here's a question for you to consider. How can I leverage my time, my talent, and my treasures to partner in the gospel? This year, how can I leverage all of that? I mean, have a look at the table in your outlines, right? Is there something under the lips category that, can give you en- that you can give your energies to? Something in the lives category. All of us can do this, right? It, it could just be very simple as I am going to, if you have your own space, to invite someone into your home once this year. That's once more than last year. 
could be that I'm just going to make an intentional effort to, to invite this young person for lunch after church. That I'm going to walk up to this older saint, right? But don't call them old, right? This is very, very rude. You, know? you are wiser. That's the right word, right? And just invite them for a cup of coffee and you say, can you tell me about how you came to faith and how you are seeking to be faithful to Jesus all these many years? Oh, it's going to be better than any sermon you've heard. They're going to pour out their lives to you. Something so simple can make such a profound impact, right? That's a point to ponder. How will you leverage your time, talents, and treasures to partner together in the gospel? Thirdly and lastly, come to point three with me. A healthy church is a church that stays faithful in the face of pressure and persecution. Verse six says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul expresses confidence in two things here. Twin confidence. Firstly, he is confident that the God who saved them will sustain them, will sustain their faith till the very end. This here is grounded in the biblical teaching that since God is the one who took the initiative to save us, since salvation is all of grace, all of mercy, all of God. Since God chose us despite the fact that we are broken sinners and have nothing to merit forgiveness, since we did not contribute anything to our salvation, then surely the God who is powerful to save is also powerful to sustain. Ah, church, that remains the greatest news of all, isn't it? That broken sinners can be reconciled to God because God, out of His great love, took the initiative. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, can I invite you to discover more of what this means for you? A love that never perishes, a hope that fulfills, a satisfaction that's unending. But here Paul has another confidence. Flowing on from this, Paul is also confident that God will give them strength to withstand the pressure and persecution that is coming their way. Withstand the pressure and persecution coming their way. You may remember... Excuse me. You may remember that one of the challenges that the Church of Philippi was facing was external persecution. Now, we actually don't know the exact details of that persecution, except that they were real threats to their safety and well-being. These threats could have come in the form of minor harassment, even major obstacles, right? And you know, Church, one of the major risks in the face of pressure and persecution is compromise. Compromise. Compromise comes in a series of steps. Rarely is it one major leap. You, you know that, right? See, at a personal level, we as Christians may be tempted to compromise by becoming increasingly silent about our faith, but by slowly but surely watering down our principles and values, by making micro changes to our habits. Remember, we are the sum of our habits, right? Micro-changes so that we become indistinguishable to our non-Christian friends. At a bigger level, we as a church may be tempted to compromise by watering down the truths of Scripture, by appealing to fleshly desires in order to get people into the doors of our church, or by slowly making discipleship easy and comfortable. As if the words of Jesus, pick up your cross and follow me, means nothing at all. 
Compromise occurs when we treasure other things more than Jesus. We will compromise at a personal level when other people's approval, affirmation, or acceptance is more important than Jesus. We will compromise at a corporate, wider level as a church when community, when ministry strategies, when church growth is more important than Jesus. And these are so appealing, aren't they? I don't know about you, right? But I would find it quite hard to believe if you told me that the sweet taste of human approval means nothing to you. Like if you said to me, I don't care what people think about me, right? I'm like, I don't think that's really true, right? I will find it difficult to believe that feeling included in a group, being known and accepted by others, feeling valued, I would find it hard to believe if you said all these things are not important. And you don't wake up for some of these things. And you know what? I will be lying to you If I told you as your pastor that I will be okay if this church shrunk, died, closed, and that's it. (laughs) Acceptance, approval, affirmation, they are attractive and appealing, aren't they? Partly because they are laced with truth and cannot be completely thrown out. But I think, church, what we have to recognize is that the sweet tastes that we savor in different aspects of our lives are shadows of the realities that are hidden in Christ. How do we resist compromise and remain faithful in the face of pressure and persecution? Verse 6 makes it clear. It is to keep returning to and putting our hope and trust in Jesus. You see, God is the one who began the good work in us. So we keep returning to the one who sustains us. We continue to return to the gospel. Now, for many of us, our experiences of persecution will be what I call soft persecution. Uh, So not quite overt. It's unlikely that the police will knock on your door in the middle of the night and ask you to recant your faith. It is unlikely that your boss will fire you because you are a Christian. It's unlikely that your friends will burn you at the stake for following Jesus that they'll probably roast you for following Jesus, right? But it's likely that you will feel the political pressure to stay silent about your faith, right? It's likely that you will be in an office environment where you feel a bit embarrassed about Christianity. And so you laugh along a little bit when someone mocks the church because you just don't really want to stand out. You might think, oh, not my battle to fight. It's likely that you will compromise on your integrity when you're with a particular group of friends and you're outnumbered 10 to 1, 20 to 1. The only way to remain faithful is to keep preaching to ourselves that powers and authorities can threaten us, they could jeopardize our safety, but Jesus is on the throne. His rule and reign is higher above all else and so allegiance to him is more important than anything else. The only way to remain faithful is to keep believing that your bosses and workplaces may have an atmosphere where the faith is frowned upon, but Jesus is returning. So people need to know the gospel through our lips and through our lives. The joy of eternity is nothing compared to the potential social awkwardness and shame in the present. Do all of this with tact and warmth and love, of course, but our hope is in Jesus. That's where we fix our eyes on. The only way to remain faithful is to keep reminding each other as Christians that our world's standards of living are but fleeting pleasures. 
But Jesus' promise of the good and eternal life is greater than we can possibly imagine. All the joys and pleasures we know in this life are but shadows of the reality. Remind each other, hey, 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 Stephen, shadows of the reality. Dorcas, shadows of the reality. Anthony, shadows of the reality. Can, can we preach this to one another to keep encouraging each other to put a hope in Jesus? The day of Christ will make this all worthwhile. But you see, this is also how we continue to delight in the faithful but imperfect church. Because sometimes our tendency towards the satisfaction towards our church could be a result of thinking that these particular imperfections will impact our maturity and salvation. Like if my church is not good, then as a Christian, I will not grow. Now, of course, I want to say there is a degree to which this is true, yeah? I mean, will better music help to elevate our experience of corporate worship? Absolutely, right? You know that, right? When the band is well-practiced and it leads us, you're like, man, like I was able to sing and engage with that so well. Thank you, band, for leading us all so well over the past couple of years. Church, will richer community enhance your walk with Jesus? Absolutely, all right? Don't pretend it doesn't matter. Yet, Philippians 1, 1 to 6, forces us to never forget that when we boil everything down to its core, Jesus is the one who sustains us. All of these things are means Jesus is the end. So we continue to put our trust and hope in Jesus. A healthy church is a church that is faithful to Christ, start to finish. You know, we are not naturally drawn to imperfect things or imperfect churches. Hmm? It's really easy to give up and to move on. I get that. The good news is salvation can be found in any church that is faithful to the gospel of Jesus. The good news is our hunger for perfection is found in Jesus. And so this frees us up to be part of, to participate in an imperfect but faithful church. That's good, isn't it? Because there is no perfect church, at least not until Christ returns. In this coming year, I pray that you will continue to make this imperfect church your church. To not just criticize and condemn, but in the words of Philippians 1, 1 to 6, to partner with your leaders, to participate with your times, talents, and treasures, and to keep putting your trust and hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that uh, the, the standards of the church in Scripture is, is so high in that you've saved and redeemed your people for your bride, the church. Yet at the same time, so remarkably sober about the imperfections and flaws and therefore so saturated in grace as we approach you. Our Lord and God, we recognize that as your church here at Grace Point, we are imperfect in so many ways. We do not have things figured out. We, we, we face so many difficulties and struggles and challenges Oh, but I thank you that you are so still at work here. And so, God, would you please work through our imperfect leaders, our imperfect members, because we have a perfect Christ. Help us, Lord, to continue to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.